Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, well, let's go to the Word together. Genesis will be at the end of chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. And I'll read in just a moment. Before I read the scripture, though, I want to kind of frame our thinking this morning. If I were to ask you, what's your bent? What's your bent in a certain situation or about a circumstance or something of that nature? Most of you would understand that I'm asking you, what is your preference? Or what is it that your natural inclination is in a situation uh, or circumstance like this? But that can also mean, what is it that your determination is? is in those situations or in a matter. And as we come to this passage of Scripture, I want us to understand where we're at because this is not a story just kind of in a vacuum. Rather, it's in a larger context that we are looking at, not only within the narrative of what is immediately surrounding it, but in the whole of Scripture as we will see today. And as Noah's family begins to multiply, as they come off of the ark today, and as they begin to multiply across the face of the earth, we'll see the spread of people, but we'll also see among that spread the bend of sin in the human heart. And over all of this, there's one most important bow, if you will, that we will capture a vision of. And that is the heart of God and his promise to redeem people. And this is what I want us to see this morning. I'm going to read beginning in Genesis chapter 8 verse 20, a little lengthy of a passage through the 17th verse of chapter 9, but I want us to grab a context for what we're talking about today. So I invite you to follow along as I read aloud. Genesis 8 beginning in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike again down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be for food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. 
Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 8 verse 19 tell us of the great flood, the global devastation, and, and what it was that God saw so that he could make Noah righteous and use his family for his redemptive purposes. Last week, I talked about why it was that when God looked at Noah and saw him as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, it wasn't just because Noah was a great guy, but what we learn from the New Testament is that God saw the cross of Jesus Christ. And because of the cross of Christ and what he knew would take place thousands of years later, he would be justified in expressing divine forbearance in Noah's day. And he was able to pass over those sins knowing that they would be fully atoned in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we also looked at it in this way, that one of the reasons that God does not exact immediate justice in all situations today is because he's exercising divine patience with us, wanting none to perish, but all to come to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so he uses Noah and his family because he chooses them sets his righteousness upon them, and uses them to preserve a redemptive thread in humanity, in history, and in the scriptures that we're studying today. As we continue to see Noah and his family come off of the ark, I want us to see today the thread of that redemptive focus that God uses and how it is that it points us today to the hope that we have in the one who comes at this time of year. And we're going to look today at three areas of redemptive focus that we see clearly in this text. And through those three areas of redemptive focus, we're going to see God's heart and his purpose for his own glory through redemption. And we'll see it in the bow of his promise that he cast in the clouds against the bent of man's sin in his heart. What I want you to see today as we walk away is this, that man's heart is completely sinful, but in love God pursues all people to redeem for his glory. Let's look first of all at that area number one of redemptive focus. That is God's command 
that reveals God's will for us. God's command that reveals his will for us. Now let's go back into the narrative and see how this focus comes about. Noah and his family have been on the ark for over a year now. We saw last week he sent a raven out and then he sent a dove out three times and on the third time the dove did not return so Noah knew he found dry ground to to live. And so they removed the top and they saw where they could see dry ground but they didn't go off of the ark. Why? Because God didn't tell them to go off of the ark, right? And then a few days later, God tells them, okay, it's time to go off of the ark. And that's when the door opened and they began to leave the ark. And that's where we pick it up in verse 20 of Genesis 8. It tells us that Noah and his family came off of the ark and their first activity of coming off of the ark was to build an altar and to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. This was the first act that they performed in coming off of the ark. Now, I want you to think about that, that, that this isn't just a detail in a story, friends. I want you to enter into the narrative with me just a little bit and consider where Noah and his family were. After more than a year on this boat, they had gone from a world that was, was full of people and, and chaotic, you might argue, in many regards. And after a year of, of hearing only water wash up and the animals that were on the ark and, you know, the, the walls closing in, if you will, from being contained in that boat with them. Once they're on dry ground and the door of the ark opens, they walk off to this completely empty globe. This must have been a very powerful moment for them. Not one that we can understand nearly as well as we can feel in what they sensed in what was taking place and that adrenaline of reality that was coursing through them as they looked to the Lord to say, thank you, thank you for saving us. A number of years back, I was driving north on Highway 65, and just as you come up the hill and, and crest the hill under the Evans Road overpass there, I was moving at a, you know, an acceptable rate of speed, or so at least I thought, um, and, and traffic was moving, and all of a sudden, traffic just stopped, like instantaneously, and I could see up ahead as I was Quickly gaining on the cars in front of me, cars began to go left and right with brake lights flashing in the eyes. And something had occurred so that traffic came to a very quick stop. I immediately stomped on my brake pad or, or my brake pedal. And as soon as I did, I felt a click and then a release. And the reality that I didn't have any brakes set in very quickly. And that will to live responded to that. And all I could think in the moment was take the median. And I did. I swerved the truck over into the median. And this was before the days of the, of the cable rails next to the highway. And so I got into the grass and from, you know, 65 miles an hour because that's the speed limit. I'm just reminding you. The grass began to slow me down. As I passed the cars that were in front of me. And I probably passed eight or ten, maybe a dozen cars. And they were, they were also on the shoulder and in between the aisles or in between the, the lanes as they too had tried to avoid the sudden stop. And as I stopped, my heart is just 
pounding out of my chest with the adrenaline of what's just taking place. And I look over and everybody's kind of in a daze as best you can tell from one car to the next. And my first thought was just simply, Lord, thank you for whatever just happened here. I mean, it was one of those overwhelming moments that you felt more than you really understood all that had just happened. That's where Noah and his family are. From a full globe to an empty globe. From, in many ways, chaos to the deafening noise of silence. And it says as they came off, there was this overwhelming sense of gratitude. And they offered to the Lord a sacrifice of thanksgiving because of what they felt in their heart. On one side, they'd just been through a marathon of turmoil over a year on a boat. I mean, I like a boat as, next, as much as the next guy, but a year, I don't know. And, and then the, the, to, to open the door and walk into the graphic reality of an empty planet and what has just taken place. And the reality of that and trying to, I mean, there's just some things in life that our mind does not comprehend, right? And that's the kind of situation that they were in. And then to know this, that their first thought, thought was not, man, we're lucky. But rather their first thought was, God's been good to us. That's a big difference, friends. That's a big difference. I, I would offer to you that where your mind first goes when you think about God in the midst of the things of life, it says more to you about what it is that's filling your heart than you can know at any other observation or searching. And that's what they did out of an unimaginable circumstance, never before or since seen. Noah and his family worshiped the Lord as worthy of all praise. That's where we find ourselves in Genesis 8. 20. And that thanksgiving, friends, that leads to praise demonstrates the very heart of God's righteousness that was within Noah and how it was that God had intended to bring him more deeply into his presence. You see, friends, the Bible teaches us that when we stop giving thanks to God, things go awry in our life. When our first inclination is, man, I'm lucky, instead of God is good, give thanks to God, then we begin to not only see God differently, but we begin to see life differently. Romans 1.21 tells us that when we fail to give thanks to God, and that failure is sometimes uh, an act of omission and sometimes an act of commission. In other words, sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's just unintentional. But when we fail to give thanks to God and to praise Him as He alone is worthy, it not only darkens us in the moment, but it begins to darken the way we think about God in all things. So that we think we are the source of more of our goodness or our luck, if you will. But the heart that gives thanks to God, friends, in all things, regardless of whether you fully understand them, and surely knowing them didn't fully comprehend all that was taking place, the heart that gives thanks to God in all things is the heart that directs the mind to praise Him as worthy at all times. You'll never say God is worthy in the hard and difficult moments of your life until first of all, you're sometimes and often by faith ready to say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you. 
You see, the life that worships God in this way, giving him all praise as he alone is worthy because we've given him thanks for his goodness. That's the only way that we will ever be able to come to know God's heart. And that's what Noah and his family learned on that day. They learned a little bit more about the heart of God and what he desired for their lives. Why? Because they gave him thanks and they praised him as he alone was worthy. But what I want us to see today is to be very careful that we don't miss the contrast that the writer of Genesis draws for us in the heart inclinations here. For though the heart of man is bent to sin, the heart of God is always bowed to redeem. There's this contrast, this interplay of ideas and imagery here. You see, it is the heart of God that always longs to relate intimately with people. And how often we do not give God credit for this. We think that we got to God because it was our heart that desired him more than his heart that desired us. But friends, that's in direct contradiction to what the scriptures teach. The scriptures clearly teach from the very beginning, it is the heart of God who desires an intimate relationship with each one of you. It is the heart of God that is working to bring us more deeply into that relationship. And this is what we're seeing when we talk about a redemptive areas of focus. How it is that God is bringing redemption into the world that we might know him in that relationship. That we might worship him as worthy of all honor and glory. And that we might walk with him in righteousness as he has brought us to do. And so he is pleased by the sacrifice it tells us in these verses and he receives it. And then he says in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground. Listen, what the writer of Genesis is doing here is he's giving you the ruminations of God's mind and heart. You are seeing into the inner recesses of the creator of all things right here. And this is what he says, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, the order and the pattern will remain with it. You see, but the heart of man is not naturally like the heart of God. For regarding man's heart, this is what God says, that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, there's a time in life. Here's what we do know from this verse. And we don't know what point it, it, it arrives. Or, and we would probably say and likely say it's different for each individual. But there is a point in life when because of our sinful nature, the full nature of our human heart comes to bear and it is naturally bent to sin. Now, if you don't know where it's at, I'll tell you where it's at. Especially for those of you who have newborn babies. Like, God is gracious. He gives you a few months where your heart is more captivated by that baby than you could ever imagine. And it's good. You're going to need that. I'm warning you now. Because there's going to come a day when they crawl. Oh, my goodness. That's the cutest thing. Obviously, God gave me the cutest baby that has ever come into this world and the smartest and the best and, and all of that. There's going to come a day when that baby's going to do this, stick the finger out, and they're going to look you dead in the eye and you're going to go, we don't do that. I do. 
right? And you go, don't do that again, 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 right? That's the point that Genesis is introducing us to here. That God in his heart is saying every intention of man is sinful from his youth. God tells us what sin has done to our heart so that we will look to him not trying to fix it ourselves, but that we will know at all times and in all situations he is the lover and the pursuer of people to bring redemption from that sin into our lives. You see, man's heart, friends, is always bent towards sinfulness. But in love, God pursues people for his glory in right worship. And the best and really the only true way to see God's heart is to see it as he reveals it, not as we desire it. As he reveals it. And in response to Noah's worship, God reveals his heart through a command. A command. Now, think about this for a moment. Most people think of commands in a negative light. That Christianity is just a list of do's and don'ts. But that is only from those who do not see God by eyes of faith, but see God in a way that their thinking about God has been darkened. God does not command you to keep you down. God commands you because if God did not give his commands, there's nothing we could do. It is the command of God that empowers us to walk in the righteousness of God. Look at what God does. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, God blesses Noah and he repeats to him his creational command. He begins by saying to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he begins to introduce him to not only this creational order that he set forth from the beginning and, and reestablished the order and the pattern of all of creation that we've looked at, but now he identifies some new realities for creation that are going to be evident because sin is a part of creation now. Verse 2, he says that humans will be feared by beasts of the earth. I'm telling you, there are times like in the woods, walking to the deer stand or the duck blind when everything's quiet and some shrill uh, 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 shrieks out and scares you to death and I'm convinced it's Sasquatch that, that they're more afraid of you than you are of them. I don't believe that too often. I'll just be honest with you. If you've been in the woods when it's dark, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like you see a snake, that snake is not more afraid of me than I am of it. I assure you. So there are areas in this pastor's life I struggle to believe the scriptures. Genesis 9, verse 2 is one of them. But I accept it by faith. And then verses 3 and 4 says that every moving thing will now be for food. Where in the beginning he gave only the plants of the earth. Now every moving thing will be for food. And he goes on to say that the life of man is one that is distinct on the earth and protected. Listen to me. This is important, friends, because this is the foundation for our understanding of the value of human life and the distinctiveness of it. For it is distinct and protected versus the life of beasts and among mankind. It doesn't mean that the life of beasts are unimportant or inconsiderable. That's not at all what the scriptures teach. They are important. It's that they're not equal to people in value and in dignity. Why? Because people are created in the image of God and that matters before God. It does mean that those life of the beast are not equal nor comparable to human 
life. You see, what God does here is two things that we begin to see a foundation for our doctrine and for our application in this world, that the human life has eternal and imminent value because God places it on that life. And when justice is applied in our world, specifically towards the killing or the shedding of blood, it should have a distinct nature to it as well because it is an attack upon the image of God, not just upon the flesh of people and of humans. And God says, I'll take care of that, whether it's from beasts, but that'll also be rendered out if it comes from people as well. These are God's intentions, and it's how we are to understand and to apply in our world today the creational command. And then he repeats that creational command, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. You see, friends, God gets glory from all of creation, but there is a unique And a distinct, yea, even a greatest glory that he receives from people. Specifically, as they live in relationship with him and bring him glory. Yes, when the beasts of the field go about their way, they represent the glory of God in creation. But when people walk with God in his redemptive plan, that is a glory that trumps all other glories in creation. And that's what God is pointing us to today. And so God establishes his command to Noah and his family as the source of his will for life. Have you ever wanted to know God's will for your life? This is where Noah and them are being introduced to it. That God's will comes by his command. And people are are called to trust and to obey him. You see, Noah's righteousness was demonstrated through his obedience to God in the the offering of his sacrifice. And, And actually, it was the obedience to God that demonstrated to Noah and his family the faithfulness of God, which was the fuel of his worship and gratitude when he got off of the ark. And so as we trust God and we obey his commands, that obedience actually fuels deeper worship because there is a deeper intimacy, a deeper knowledge of God, not just in the cognitive details of it, but in the experiential relationship of it. Listen, friends, you don't know how good and gracious and powerful God really is until he tells you to do something. You have no idea how it's going to happen, but you follow him out of faith and he comes through for you. And then you go, that's where Noah and his family were. And that's what God is teaching us here. That God created people to live, to walk in a relationship with him. His, His commands tell us how to do that. He redeems us for this very purpose, that we can walk. Did you know that if God does not command, we could never please him? But listen, until we believe his command by faith in him, we cannot fulfill them. You say, well, I can do some in my own. No, you can't. Because no matter how often you do that and how regular and faithful you are, there will come a time when what you learn is your faithfulness to God's command actually roots bitterness in you when it is done in your own strength and power. That's why some of you are bitter at religion. That's why some of you are angry at God. You feel like you've been doing everything right, but God hadn't been coming through. And what I would pastorally and in love say to you is, 
you're believing that what you can do is enough to satisfy God. And there will never be enough that you can do, neither in individual acts nor in the accumulation of your life, that is worthy of God's salvation. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to because Christ has already done that for you. That's why we're here today to tear down religion and to see God's redemptive thread to walk by obedience and faith in a relationship with Him. The highest glory for every Jesus follower is to walk in obedience to God's commands in love. What a beautiful picture this is. John, the writer of the gospel, though now greatly advanced in age, at the very end of his life, looking back on all things, 2 John verse 6 says this, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Walking in obedience to God's command has always been his plan, friends. Micah the prophet charges us to walk humbly with your God. You see, walking in obedience to God's commandments demonstrates faith and righteousness that he puts upon us. And and friends, as I stated, you may comply with God's commands for a time without faith, but the difference between complying and adhering to commands as rules and regulations versus walking in obedience by faith in a relationship is what they produce in your heart and in your life. And listen to me, lest you think you are some way dismissed from this, you're absolutely not. Every person, specifically Christians, are right in the throes of this. You need to know the difference between what it means to walk with God in your own strength and to walk with God by faith. And what is produced in your heart is the only thing that you can know tells the difference. When you walk by faith, there is an increasing sense of love, an increasing sense of God's joy, that overflows from you and the peace of life that is sustaining you as well as a stronger desire for more faith in God to see more of God's power and glory in your life. But when you walk, even trying to obey God's commandments in your own strength and you, you do the end run around faith, here's what that produces. Angst, frustration, bitterness at God because you think God owes you to some degree, measure, or manner because of what you have done. And friends, I want to tell you this. If there is an absence of peace from God in your life, maybe anxiousness or turmoil or or, or frustration, whatever the case may be, if there's an absence of the reality of, of, of the overwhelming love of God in your life, If there's an absence of defining joy in your life, hear me, there is only one route for you to take to get out of that and get back into relational walking with God, and that's repentance. You can argue with Him all day long, but I'm telling you, look at the fruit to know the root. And if it's not producing the fruit of God in your life, it's not sourced in the love and the strength of God. Ask God to forgive you and to show you where you are walking in your strength. That you might walk in increasing love and joy. And that is the defining reality for the Christian in this world. As we war with sin within us, we must war to walk by faith in God. 
not by our own strength. Even in the things that we've done a thousand times before by faith, the one time we begin to do them in our own strength will steal our joy, will steal that stabilizing love and peace from us. Repent and turn back to have the love of God lavished upon you in that very way. When you walk in obedience because you trust Jesus, the commandments of God become a source of your joy, a source of your comfort, a source of your strength for life. This is the first area of redemptive focus that we must set our hearts, that God's commands reveal His will to us, that that those who trust in Him can walk with Him in obedience. Are you walking with God by faith? Well, this leads to our second area of redemptive focus that we're introduced to here. And it's that God's covenant stirs the heart to trust Him. You see, faith is not something we have to conjure up. God has given to us what it is that we need to strengthen and to establish our faith. Chapter 9, verse 8 begins, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him. And God establishes a covenant with Noah and with his offspring. You see, a covenant is directly related to God's judgment here. And, and it says to him that he will never destroy all flesh on the earth by floodwaters. This is the promise. And so as a reminder, God says, I will set a bow in the clouds and that will be a rainbow. And when the bow is seen, God will remember his covenant. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Who sees the bow? Not a trick question. It's in the text. Who sees the bow? Before you answer that, let me go back to last week. Who looked at the cross first? You or God? Not you. God was looking at the cross before you ever got here. I'm telling you, God sees the bow. God sees the sign of his promise. And when he sees it, he says he will remember. When you see a rainbow, more than you ought to remember God's promises, you ought to remember God sees the bow to remember his promise. Why? Because if God, the one who is faithful always, remembers his promise and keeps it, all we got to do is stay with him. Stay with him. You see, the rainbow reminds us of so much more than we won't get too bad of a rainstorm. It reminds us of God's goodness, of God's favor, of God's pleasure in redemption, and God's heart to redeem people. This is what he's teaching us. He establishes a covenant sign to remind all of who saw it of his promise that he gave. Now, covenant actually becomes a central theme in the scriptures for the redemptive thread through the scriptures. God establishes covenant in a number of ways, but he does so because he's showing us how it is that he's bringing redemption into the world to a people whose heart is bent on sin. And, and covenant for us is, is a way for God to establish a relationship with us. That, that it literally means to, to cut an agreement, which it always enters in by, by sacrifice. And what did God sacrifice here? He said, I'll never uh, exact judgment upon the earth again by flooding and destroying everything with water. God cut away from that. He said, I won't do that anymore. He didn't say he wouldn't judge sin. Quite the opposite. He said, I won't judge it in that way. But secondly, covenants not only hold a promise, they have a sign. And the purpose of that sign is to serve as a reminder so that when it is seen, when the bow is seen, God will see it and people can see it. And they will remember or they should remember that he loves and he remembers his promise 
to us. You see, what's most important, though, for us to understand is the defining purpose of God in his covenants. He uses covenants, not as contractual agreements to go, you know what, if you'll do this, I'll do this. And if you'll scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You'll do a little bit for me, I'll do a little bit for you. That's how we mitigate relationship with God out of religion. That is not what the gospel tells for us. The foundation for covenants are to build and to strengthen trust in God because we know him not just cognitively but experientially I, I don't know if, if you've heard my, me tell these stories before but I have issues with chairs issues with chairs but there's a reason I have issues with chairs a number of years ago we were with friends uh, around Christmas season and we went into a coffee shop and we kind of went into the back room and we were all sitting around and being the nice guy I am I let everybody else choose their chair first and the only chair left other than a pillow on the floor was this old antique rocker leaning up against the wall and little did I know I was about to find out why it was leaning up against the wall I pulled it out and I sat down in it and yes yes there were some issues I needed to drop some pounds I know that but it was the holiday season that was coming on January the 1st and I hadn't been in that chair two minutes and all of a sudden right in the middle of everybody in this small circle of friends in the coffee shop my feet are straight up in the air and I'm on my back going oh goodness if they get a picture of this I will never live that down and so I hopped up as quickly as I could I don't remember if it was before or after that event, but we were out one night with my family, my extended family. There were eight or ten of us sitting around a table in a farmhouse restaurant eating. And in the whole lieu of the farmhouse theme, there were some old chairs. And everyone took their seat, and Lane came up. And here's this little rickety chair, but I thought they wouldn't have it out here if it weren't enough to hold you up, right? And so I sat in it, and all of a sudden, Lane was there, and then Lane was not. Where'd Lane go? I have issues with chairs. That's why I give it the old shake now before I sit in it because I want to know if I'm going to be able to sit in it, right? God gives covenants for this reason, friends, so you can know he will hold you. He is faithful to his promise and he wants you to remember that. He establishes covenants so that those who trust in him know and walk with him intimately by faith. You see, when we see the rainbow, we need to remember God's promise and we need to remember this, he does. He does. Not everyone that sees the rainbow has a relationship with God, but all that see the rainbow should know that God loves them and wants a personal relationship with them. And that while he may not be judging that sin in the instant, God is faithful. He will judge sin. There is a time coming when every offense will be answered for. And it'll either be covered by the blood of Jesus or there won't be any excuse for it. God's covenant in the rainbow points us to trust in His ultimate covenant for us on the cross of Jesus Christ, friends. He's showing us there's a plan. He's establishing these covenants. And the ultimate covenant of redemption will come through Jesus Christ on the cross when He pays every debt for every person who will ever sin and for every sin they have when they simply trust in him and repent to receive his forgiveness and cleansing. It is the covenant of God that stirs the heart to trust in God that as we believe in him, we might walk in his commands. Well, that's the first two. The third redemptive focus, I need to cover it quickly, but I want you to know it is most appropriate for us to celebrate this covenant at this time of year. 
The third area of redemptive focus is this. It is the commission of God that sets his aim on the nations for more glory. Chapter 9, verse 19, we see the nations begin to develop. And as Noah's family expands, something far greater occurs. The nations of the earth come from it. Actually, verse 19 of Genesis 9 is really a heading for chapter 10. And it tells us of all that will occur there. But what transpires at the end of Genesis 9 is important for us because it directly affects how the nations will develop. We see in this very brief story that Noah gets drunk and he gets covered up after discovered by his youngest son Ham. He's naked in his tent and Ham says that's embarrassing. He goes and gets his older two brothers and they come and they take a sheet and we're not exactly sure of everything that takes place. We know that they got the blanket over Noah and he needed covering in his sin just like everyone else did. If there was any question whether Noah's righteousness was by God's grace or Noah's goodness, this should answer it for us it was not based on Noah's goodness it was only on God's grace and so when Noah wakes up he learns what Ham did and he becomes very angry with him now the text makes no moral commentary on Noah's actions that's important for us here friends because it's not the point of the story we do know from the whole counsel of God that drunkenness is always sin drunkenness is always an offense before God clearly The scriptures teach that. It's always wrong. But the point of this narrative is not Noah got drunk, we can too, because God doesn't say it was wrong for him. Rather, what we see here is one commentator helps us. He says Noah becomes the second Adam. He's received the command of creation to be fruitful and multiply. He's received the divine blessing from God, but he's also demonstrated himself as the father of the corrupt seed that will continue. Listen, friends, of all the people and the animals that got on the boat, there was one other thing that got on it, and it was sin. It was sin in the heart of man. And that's why God said about his heart what he said. And so since Genesis 3, sin continues its expansive spread and Noah is not removed from its influence. Rather, his sin leaves him in the shame and the nakedness of it in need of covering, even embarrassing his whole family. And while we don't know exactly what Ham or his brothers did, here's what we do know. It greatly angered Noah and Noah cursed Ham. Out of his own sin, he cursed Ham. And through Ham's lineage would come one named Canaan. And I'm going to tell you what. If you read chapter 10 and you study the sons of Canaan, here's what you'll learn. It reads like the blacklist of the Israelites in the Old Testament. They are a curse. They are a thorn in the flesh of. They are a continual issue and problem that taunts and hounds God's people throughout the Old Testament. Where did that come from? It came from the sin of Noah's heart cast upon his son Ham through the curse and the lineage of Canaan, Ham's son. You see, there's a greater reality that God is painting for us here, though. Not just to say that sin becomes the root of animosity and trouble between the nations as they develop, but beyond that, he's telling us that though the bend of man's, sin, or man's heart is sinful only and always, the bow of God's redeeming love remains. 
He wants us to see this. He wants us to see that the nations will go forth and it is from the nations that he will bring his glory. In the New Testament, the nations become, uh, uh, they are set at the crosshairs of God's commission for glory through redemption. Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 tells us to go and make disciples of who? Of all nations. Of all nations. Why? Because in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, it tells us, speaking of Jesus, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed from God, for God, people from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. You go, but wait, aren't these the people who were living in sin and who rejected God and had offspring who rejected God? Yes, yes. What I want you to see today, friends, is the reason we exist is because we have received the love of God. We exist for the same reason Noah's family existed. There was a redemptive element, a thread that God had ordained. The gospel would be preached upon the earth to all nations. And people from every nation would come and worship around his throne. This is Christmas. That the God who is a missionary God would come to us, people dead in our sin. And he would become like us so we could know him, believe in him, and become like him. This is the redemptive thread of God that says that, that from his work for us, we can be forgiven of our sins and brought into an intimate relation to to walk with him how powerful this is that's why we receive our global mission offering at christmas every year because god's coming to us as our mandate to go to the nations that we don't exist for us christians we're not here for us we are here for the nations and as long as christ tarries crosshairs of God's redemptive mandate upon us should be set upon the nations, some of which live across the street and others across the globe. Every nation would hear the gospel and believers would become Christ followers for the glory of his great name. This is the redemptive plan of God for the spread of his glory across the face of the earth. As Habakkuk says, as the waters cover the sea, so God's glory by redeeming man would cover the earth. And do you know where this begins? It begins by you walking in righteousness with God. Are you? Have you heard his command? Have you seen the sign of his covenant, cross of Jesus Christ? Have you received his forgiveness? Are you living for his glory? Man's heart is completely sinful. But in love, God pursues all people to redeem for his glory. Let's pray.